Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. If you like C.S. Lewis, oh, you've come to the right hour. In Mark 16, 15, it said, he said to them, go unto all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. And if you are a C.S. Lewis fan, I think he said at one point that all of life is evangelism. And I've got one of my all-time favorite guests, Dr. Jerry Root, on the program in this hour. He's the professor professor of evangelism and director of evangelism initiative at Wheaton College. Awfully glad to have him uh, on the show. He has uh, lectured on C.S. Lewis at 78 universities in 18 different countries. So if you have questions on Lewis or the way Lewis thought or anything about him, uh, now is the time to send me a text question. I will ask on your behalf. Jerry, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Bill. It's good to be with you. Yeah. It's always fun. These yeah. visits are always fun. I agree. And last fall, we had our staff meeting, and each one of the, the hosts of, the, of the, the shows here at Faith Radio had to kind of do a State of the Union on their show and, and present to the other staff how things were going. And I played two clips during my little presentation. Both of them were you. <laughs> you need to raise your level a little bit, I think. <laughs> well, I'm planning to next fall, so but I appreciate that endorsement. Uh, <laughs> But yeah, uh, you always leave me with incredibly uh, deep things to think about, and the wisdom is always powerful, and I uh, always enjoy having you on. You always make me think. Thank you, sir. Let's, uh, let's jump into Lewis a little bit. Lewis did say all of life is evangelism, and I know you agree. Well, he, he even said this. He, there are about 73 books he wrote, and he said all of my books, most of my books are evangelistic. Well, some of his books were were about medieval literary criticism. <laughs> some of his books were about fantasy and children's stories. Some of his books were science fiction. Mm-hmm. Some of his books were philosophy of education. What did he mean? Most of my books are evangelistic. And I think Lewis, he, he even said this clearly, um, we don't need more books by Christians about Christianity. We need more books by Christians about other subjects with their Christianity latent. And all of a sudden, people see Christianity isn't a single thread, but it's a fabric of threads, and everything seems to support its claims. So it's in that sense he meant that. But some of his books were just um, very, very uh, obviously evangelistic. His uh, Christian apologetic works, for example, were, were that way. Even even it, things like mere Christianity, problem of pain, miracles. And also, he... He said, after he wrote Out of the Silent Planet, the first of his science fiction books, came out in the late 1930s, he said, I've learned that any amount of theology can now be smuggled into people's minds under the guise of romance. So he found even fiction was a way to get people to think about themes if they've got their guard up, if they're so hostile towards Christianity. They, They let down their guard when they read a book of fiction, and then all of a sudden they start to catch by contagion some of the great 
uh, uh, theological themes in the work of fiction. So that's how he meant it. Yeah. Jerry, what did you find so captivating about Lewis? Well, I was a student in college, and I, I, didn't, I wasn't a Christian until college, my first year. And I certainly wasn't academic at all. You have to take it by faith now, but I was an athlete back then. So I, I went to college to play sports. My older brother was a Christian. He took me to a meeting. I heard the gospel for the first time. I responded like a, like a duck to water. I was so eager for this message. It was good news for me. And I started sharing Christ with my friends, and they kept asking me questions, and I had no clue what the answers were to those questions. I thought they were good questions. And so I, I said, I'll try and find out. I'd see Lewis's name in the literature, but my older sister was a Christian, and she was teaching um, children. Uh, she was a teacher, and she told me one night over dinner the plot of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the first of the Narnian books. And I, I was overwhelmed by that. I thought, this is a great story. So I went out and bought the books, read them, and then I wanted to find out more about Lewis. So I picked up his surprise by joy, which was his pilgrimage to faith. And he talks about deep longings and being haunted by these deep longings. He tries to awaken the deep longings when he writes about almost any subject, whenever he puts pen to paper. I knew the deep longings, Bill. They, they, they gave me a vocabulary for my soul, the very things that he was talking about. So I started reading him voraciously. When I got ready to graduate from college, a man wisely said to me, you do not get an education in college. I started wondering why was I paying all that tuition. <laughs> but he said, you don't get an education in college. You lay a foundation for one. And mm. in America, we call the graduation exercises commencement. He says, now build on that foundation and commence your education. Pick an author who will take you places and make him your life study. I think he could have said, pick a composer, pick an artist, pick a period of history, pick a country, but something that will keep you engaged. And I realize Lewis opened more than wardrobe doors. If you read him, he's going to take you to lots of places. So I started reading Lewis. I get to seminary when I did my master's work, and I did both my master's and doctorate on Lewis. But I got, I got ready to do my master's thesis and I just knew I wasn't going to be able to write it on the use of the optative mood in the Greek text of Philemon. That wasn't going to hold me. <laughs> so instead, I, I said, could I do it on Lewis? They said, yeah. So it was the first time I put pen to paper. And then it just grew from there. It's been a blast. Mm -hmm. Jerry, I already have a listener wanting to say I'm a novice C.S. Lewis fan. What three books would you recommend that he start with? Well, I always ask people, what kind of books are you interested in? Mm -hmm. um, if he just wants a, a taste of Lewis, I would, I would encourage him to read The Great Divorce. While it's a work of fiction, you get some of his theological thinking in that book and some of his precise thinking as well. Although you don't want to um, – um, you, you, you want to recognize when a person writes fiction, they may be taking some liberties in the fiction. So be sensitive to that. But Great Divorce is a good place to start. You can read it in an evening. And then if he wants to read something that's more robust, more philosophically uh, oriented, but also uh, would give him a flavor for the Christian faith, I would read, I would read um, uh, Mere Christianity. If he wants a taste for um, some penetrating fiction that's, that's, that's deep and you can't read it once, you have to read it several times, is Till We Have Faces. And also, I would say this, it, 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 he retells the myth of Cupid and Psyche. Lewis recognized that we are people of the mind and people of the heart. I think that's why he's an effective evangelist. He could appeal to both. But sometimes he would write a book more propositional, 
and then write the same themes in a more imaginative way. So the book that complements Till We Have Faces is The Four Loves. And and so if you're going to read Till We Have Faces, you might want to read them both. Because the one is a propositional analysis of love, and the other one, he looks at it imaginatively, and he sees love off the rails, somebody who abuses love, and how finally they have to be reached by the love of God they keep pushing away. Jerry, it seemed, it seemed like Lewis had this ability to make points, and his points were so exceptional that they've just become the gold standard for uh, sermon illustrations, and you hear them pop up all the time. Do you have uh, a, a favorite or two illustrations of Lewis that that you find yourself using frequently? Well, when it comes to evangelism, there's one that I like. It was a, a conundrum for him before he became a Christian, his autobiography. He reasoned his way through the morass of atheism mm-hmm. and its incongruities. He reasoned his way through the materialism as a supporting worldview. He reasoned his way through agnosticism. He said, <laughs> he said, uh, most people talk cheerfully about the agnostic search for God, but if they were as I was, then they might as well have talked about the mouse's search for the cat. <laughs> so he, he wrestles his way through all the various religious options, and finally he becomes a theist, but he said, I didn't think I could know God personally any more than Hamlet could know Shakespeare. He had a late-night conversation with J.R.R. Tolkien. Tolkien was, he said, one of the human causes of his conversion. And and after this conversation with Tolkien, he went back and revisited that analogy of Hamlet and Shakespeare. And he said, I realize the analogy was actually a good one. Hamlet, the character, could never break out of the play to get to know the author. But Shakespeare, the author, could have written, written himself into the play as a character and made the introduction between Shakespeare, the author, and Hamlet, the character, possible. And he says, I think that's what happened wow. in the incarnation. And, and it's it's a brilliant, brilliant analogy, but it shows, too, the strength of Lewis's capacity to use imaginative depiction to make his points. So he'll say something propositionally, but he wants the person not only to catch it with the head, but to catch it with the heart as well. Mm-hmm. So that would, be an, that would be one example. I think, though, that the reason why he was good at evangelism was because, in part, his sensitivity to his pre-conversion life. And what he learned in his own quests for faith. And that's that's an interesting area to go to if you want to move in that direction. I absolutely do. And I think, Jerry, if you don't mind, it'd probably be a good time to take a short break. And then we can sure. come back and, and pick it up right there. Dr. Jerry Root is my guest. We're talking about the amazing uh, work of C.S. Lewis. If you have any questions or comments about that spectacular author uh, or my guest, please let me know what they are. I'll ask on your behalf to 877-933-2484. Be back with Dr. Jerry Root in just a minute. Dr. Jerry Root, he is uh, quite an expert on C.S. Lewis. I'm loving this conversation. Uh, right before the break, uh, you were going to get us back on track. So let's pick up where we left off. Well, I think, I think, Bill, I'll let you take the lead in this, but there are basically three things I would like to point out. Okay. In his pre-conversion experience, where they informed his effectiveness as an evangelist. And so I'll just take one at a time, and then we can pause between them, and you can reflect on them however you want, if that's okay. 
But 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 the first thing is Lewis listened to his life. Frederick Beekner in his book says we should listen to our life because there's stuff in the depths of it. There's stuff in the reflection of it and looking back over life that inform us and help us. It's like reading a novel and learning from that, but our own life is the subject. And Lewis realized he had these deep longings, and he was trying constantly to find the object of these longings. He writes in Mere Christianity, If I find in myself a desire that nothing in this world could satisfy, perhaps what I'm looking for is not merely something of this world. It was a quest for the transcendent. And he talked about the fact that he had this thing called the dialectic of desire. He would, he would, he knew he had the longings, so he would tether his longings to some object, thinking it would fulfill him, and then it would disappoint. So he'd untether, tether it to something else, and it would disappoint. And he went through life kind of like that, seeing that none of these things would work. It's like the book of Ecclesiastes, actually. It starts off with uh, the, the author of the book saying, uh, vanity of vanities, all is vanity under the sun. Well, well there, he uses the phrase under the sun 28 times in that book. Why? Because Ecclesiastes 3.11, God has placed eternity in our hearts. And the mere under the sun perspective is never ultimately going to satisfy So the author in Ecclesiastes says, who can eat and who can enjoy life without him? You take God out of the picture, I'm never going to be satisfied in this world. But you give me God, and now I can enjoy the earthly things for what they can do, but never be an idolater by expecting from them something they can't do. And Lewis, Lewis really got this, I think, when he was a child. And he started seeing these things, and then he started gravitating towards other things that would feed these desires and set his heart questing in the right direction. He brings these up as an as a evangelist. He learned it before he was an, a Christian and benefited by it when he wanted to help others know Christ. That, it's brilliant, and I, I, I want to I keep learning, so keep, keep going, Jerry. Well, the second area that I think was interesting before he was a Christian was he was intellectually curious. Okay. So consequently, because Lewis, he eventually will develop a faith-integrated approach to life. Mm -hmm. And consequently, then anything, any, any, any place where you put your eyes, anything you look at in a world made by God, in a world where God is present, becomes a thing that you could naturally segue to the gospel. Lewis was intellectually curious. He's reading voraciously. As, as a non-Christian, he even knew his Bible. You can read it in some of the some of the letters that he wrote before he was a Christian. He was aware of the Bible. He knew it. He he was a guy who, though he rejected God when he was young, he wasn't a person who was going to close his mind to the fact that the Bible was a book that had influenced Western civilization. And so he read it to be just an honest person. And and this kind of honesty and this intellectual curiosity led him to be attracted to a wide range of authors, uh, some who wrote of the longings, and they fed that part of him. But most, not all, of the authors he he started gravitating towards happened to be Christians. And they wrote of what he called the roughness and density of life. They, 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 They recognized that life is complex, that people are are complex. They have dignity. And we would say all people have dignity because they're made in the image of God, but they're very broken. And so therefore there's there's a kind of depravity that's operational in them. We, we, We have high ideals, and yet we live beneath our own ideals. 
As a matter of fact, if you if you read the Bible accurately, all the Bible characters are like this. I think they all could have introduced themselves in some sort of a recovery group. You know, <laughs> hi, my name's Noah. Hi, my name's Noah, and I'm a drunk. Hi, my name's Abraham. I'm a liar and a coward. I'd tell a lie to put my wife's life at risk rather than risk my own. Hi, we're Isaac and Rebecca, and we're dysfunctional parents. Hi, my name's Jacob. I'm a cheater and a scoundrel. Hi, my name's Rahab. I'm a harlot. Hi, my name's Samson. I struggle with lust. Hi, my name is Naomi, and I'm bitter. Hi, my name's David. I'm an adulterer and a murderer. Hi, my name's Solomon. I'm supposed to be wise, but I'm very intemperate. Hi, my name is Thomas. I struggle with doubts. Hi, my name's Peter. I let down my best friend in an hour he needed me most. And hi, my, my name's Paul, and, and and I'm a Christian killer, and I'm really hard to work with. <laughs> you know, they, they all could have done this. Mm-hmm. And that, that's honest life. Mm-hmm. We're all there at some level. And so consequently, Lewis became aware of this with these authors he read. Uh, Richard Weaver, who is a a rhetorician at the University of Chicago, in his book on the ethics of rhetoric, he's the guy that wrote the book, Ideas Have Consequences. But his book on the ethics of rhetoric says, you have to watch out for the false rhetoric that always speaks in God terms and devil terms. Mm. They use God terms to describe their heroes who can do no wrong. And they use devil terms to describe the people they don't like who they think can do no good. And that's not true of any of us. Even the worst of us are capable of a good act once in a while, and even the best of us are capable of stumbling. And Lewis, Lewis recognized this. So when he starts sharing the gospel with people through his writings, he has this complexity. He understands he's appealing to people who have dignity and depravity. There's the roughness and density of life. And when he presents the gospel, it's real. It's not something fake. He doesn't look at people he disagrees with. Nightly news, if you watch right or left, their heroes are all God terms. Their uh, enemies are all devil terms. And neither of them are accurate because people are complex. We're capable of good and bad. So that was the second thing. Mm -hmm. He listened to his life and the longings. And secondly, he was intellectually curious, and he found the books that he was gravitating towards spoke of real life, the way it really is. When he would preach the gospel, he would preach it in a real way. But the the next thing is he, he rejected the childhood faith he had been raised with. And even his rejection was instrumental in shaping his effectiveness as an evangelist. His grandfather was the pastor. His maternal grandfather was the pastor of the church he went to as a boy, where he was baptized, Anglican. He was baptized in the Church of Ireland. But his mother uh, got cancer when he was little. She ends up dying when he's nine years old. And well-meaning people, but misinformed people at his church told him, oh, if you pray for her, she'll get better. You you, you can't make that guarantee to a child. Mm-hmm. It might get better. I think we should pray. I know people who have been healed and stuff, but I know people who haven't been. They've been called home to heaven rather than be healed in this life. And then he he, he decided, since people told him, pray, she'll get better. He prayed with all the sincerity of a child who felt his mother's survival was dependent on his prayers. She got worse. They say, you got to pray harder. She died. He said, this this is a crock. This whole Christian thing, it's 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 not right. This doesn't work. And he became very pessimistic. He also had a deformity of his thumbs. 
And, and consequently, at, at school, when he would play games, he was made fun of and so on. He was a bit awkward. He didn't realize. He said, my friends would build castles at the sea. I had to content myself to write about them because I was so awkward. Hmm. What he didn't realize was his writing abilities were being shaped by that liability. And that liability eventually would become an asset. And that's why we're here today talking about Lewis, because of what he was able to do with his pen. But he didn't have the perspective as a child about these things. And so he said, I became a pessimist. He he said, uh, I didn't believe in God, and I was mad at him for making a world. And he said, I didn't even see the incongruity of my thinking at that particular place. But as a result of this, in time, he, he, he comes to say, I want God, not my idea of God. I want God, not your idea of God either. You may be able to help me. You may be able to give me perspective and help me see things I haven't seen before. But Lewis had this awareness that God was really big, bigger than any finite perspective of him. There's a poem by uh, Tennyson where, where, where he says, our little systems have their day. He's talking about theological systems. Our little systems have their day. They have their day and cease to be. They are but broken lights of thee. And thou, O Lord, art more than they. And like Walter Elwell, the the great evangelical theologian, used to say, all theology is approximation. And what we seek are better and better approximations. So Lewis recognizes childhood faith was insufficient, so he jumps into atheism. But this critical approach caused him to second-guess his atheism eventually. And eventually... He jettisons the atheism, and he comes to a more robust understanding of a Christian faith that, that is complex, uh, complex enough that the greatest scholars will be interested, yet could be explained simply enough that the smallest child could respond. And so this honesty that came to him, even in the way he rejected the childhood faith, the, 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 the Sunday school notions, to move on to a more robust uh, approach is good. He, he wrote in a sermon he preached at Oxford University called The Weight of Glory, if our religion is objective, we must never avert our eyes from those elements in it which seem puzzling or repellent. For it is precisely in the puzzling or repellent where we discover what we do not yet know and need to know. And so consequently, when Lewis comes to his evangelism, he is able to look at the thorny things. He's able to deduce them and dissect them and bring sense out of them and present them in a way that an honest scholar would and an honest listener will hear this and respond when he starts pointing them to Christ. Hmm. So I think those things, even from his childhood, were extremely helpful. Yeah. Jerry, let me take a short break. When I come back, there's a lot of listeners that are jumping in saying, I don't know much about C.S. Lewis, and and what book would you recommend? And I would love uh, for you when we come back, if you would explain what Lewis explains so beautifully in Mere Christianity, what he calls the trilemma. Uh-huh. You'd be willing to do that. I'd love to sure, have our sure. listeners hear that uh, piece from your Christianity. Dr. Jerry Root is my guest. We're going to take a little break. If you've got a question or a comment, let me know what it is. 877-933-2484. We'll be right back.
I'm back with Dr. Jerry Root. He's the professor of evangelism and director of evangelism initiative at Wheaton College. He's also a, a C.S. Lewis expert. He's lectured on Lewis at 78 universities in 18 different countries. He's a very popular C.S. Lewis uh, conference speaker all around the world. And I'm always glad to have him on the show. I learned so much. And I'm getting a lot of really lovely comments from listeners. Um, Let's see. This is an, the bill. This interview is an absolute treasure. Cannot wait to listen to it again tonight on the rebroadcast. How nice is that? Well, you know what, though, uh, Bill, I believe this with all my heart. If somebody is getting anything out of this, then God is answering my prayers. Amen. I believe any of us, we're, we're all pea brains. What do we really You're know? <laughs> given, given how much there's out there, the Widener Library right. at Harvard University has 19 million volumes under that one roof. Who's yeah. read them all? We're just, we're just pea brains. But I believe that we could offer something a lot like Jesus took five loaves and two fish at the side of the Sea of Galilee, and he blessed it and broke it and distributed it. And I pray, even before I came on the show, God would take the, the, the crumbs that I have to offer and that maybe the Holy Spirit would do with them for your listeners what Jesus did with those fish and loaves. Mm-hmm. So Jesus says in John fifteen five, apart from me, you can do nothing. I think that's something that we should all be mindful of every day. Yeah. And 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 so anyway, you asked about the trilemma. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna give you a couple of quotes though before we go into the trilemma. I love okay. a couple of C.S. Lewis quotes. There are far far better things ahead than any we leave behind. And I love this yeah. one. To be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. How can we be petty with others when he's been so kind to us? Yeah. Let's talk about the trilemma from Mere Christianity. Well, the book Mere Christianity begins with a moral argument for God's existence. And Lewis sees that maybe we have an argument with somebody. If we have an argument, we, we think that's not fair. We, we believe that there's some standard that we're appealing to. In an essay he wrote called De Futilitate, Lewis said, all judgments imply a standard. What's the standard? And so he starts building this argument. And as he builds the moral argument, he comes to a place where all of us basically are morally bankrupt. We, have, we believe in high ideals, but we fall short of them, like I said a few minutes ago. So in the midst of it, Lewis then says, all of a sudden, when we have this realization that there's a moral law, we fall short of it. All of a sudden, in history, Jesus shows up. And some people say, well, I, I, I like Jesus. He's good. He's a great moral teacher. I like him. And Lewis says, you can't say he's a great moral teacher. Jesus does not leave that alternative available for you. And borrowing from an argument by St. Augustine called Outdus Out Malos Homo, either God or bad man, you encounter the sayings of Jesus and you have to come up with a different conclusion. Jesus said he was God. Hmm. Lewis says our options are three. Either he's a liar, but but the the quality of his life and the things that he did tell us he's not an immoral person. Or he's a lunatic on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg. 
And we see again the things that Jesus did doesn't allow us the conclusion that this guy was a lunatic. So the only option that's really available to us is that he was who he said he was, the God of the universe who came, like again Shakespeare writing himself into the place so Hamlet could meet him. He's the God who comes in order that he might communicate to us his purposes for us, his love for us, and so on. And, and, and so the interesting thing, too, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. What do you do with that? I know some people say, I, I reject Christianity because it's so narrow. I said, really? But when you come to a red light, do you stop with your car? Well, why? Why be so narrow? You see, truth is not reality. Truth is what I think about reality when I think accurately about it. And so consequently, if I make a true statement, it has to be as narrow as the reality it seeks to describe. Jesus' words may or may not be true, but they can't be false because they're narrow. All true statements are narrow. So if a person just rejects it out of hand because it's narrow, I say, I, I think we've got to go back to square one at logic class with you and talk about what the nature of truth is itself. And unfortunately, we have to be very patient with people who are confused on this because our culture is off the rails when it comes to how you evaluate truth. I've been teaching college courses full-time for 25 years, and 16 years before that, I did part-time. And so in, those, in all those years, um, 40 years of teaching, 41 years of teaching, very seldom can I say to a class at the beginning, even when I used to teach philosophy, can you tell me what truth is? And very seldom will a student be able to give me a sound definition for truth. Some wow. do, but not very often. So if, if somebody says, I reject Jesus' statement because it's so narrow, I say, boy, oh boy, you know, bless your heart. My heart goes out to you. But let's, let's, before we talk about Jesus, let's talk about the nature of truth. So what's the truth that Jesus tries to communicate? Number one, that he loves us. He loves us. And I, I like people to know that God loves them. I, I don't know, unconditionally. I don't know a person who's lived a moment of un, un, uh, honest life where that isn't meaningful. Human love is great as far as it goes, but I'm pretty sure I've never been loved perfectly by another human being because I'm convinced I've never loved another human being perfectly. I fall short. And so his love, which is unconditional, is meaningful to me. Second, he says he forgives us of our sins. I don't know a person who's lived a moment of honest life who doesn't realize they're messed up. I believe in the high ideal of love, but there are times I've had sharp words with people I say I love most in the world. Mm. I believe in justice, but sometimes I'm unfair in my judgments and so on. And here comes this message that this love that is unconditional also forgives me. All those places, I don't have to be pretentious and hide. I don't have to be uh, dishonest about the realities in my broken heart. I can own that before a God who loves me and forgives me. And that doesn't mean I have now an excuse for all my sins. His love and forgiveness makes me want to grow and do better, but also makes me realize there's a net to catch me when I screw up. And then lastly, this message is he's willing to enter our life as Lord to begin the process of bringing order out of the chaos we've made of things. If I recognize I'm a sinner and I fall short, then that message of his lordship is also an affirmation of his love. He wants to be a part of my life. And, and so here's the trilemma. It's either a madman's words or it's a liar's words or this is the good news. This is the gospel. 
And then Lewis builds on that. What, what should the effect be of this great good message and the effect be of a relationship with Christ and the rest of mere Christianity is about that? So well expressed, Jerry. Thank you so much for that. You know, I've, I've asked people, you know, why did they crucify Jesus? And a lot of people, they don't know how to answer that. Yeah. Yeah, it's sad. It's sad. But, 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 but you know what? We're sad. If we're honest, there's something sad about us. And, and, and the people who find hope are the people who begin with acknowledging the shortcomings in themselves. Mm-hmm. And the people then start to quest, like Lewis did. He's looking for the longing, the object of his deep longing. And, and the longings he talks about, too, he writes about them in his books so that he can awaken them in other people. One is the pilgrim longing. And he sees this as mentioned in all kinds of literature. You've got, you've got the quest literature. You've got the Odyssey. What is it about Ulysses and Homer's Odyssey? He just wants to go home to Penelope. But when he gets home, it's not the same. What is it about the Hobbit? When Bilbo Baggins just wants to go home, he's on a journey with 13 dwarves who are trying to reclaim their <laughs> ancestral home ancestral home from a dragon, and he's on this journey. He doesn't want to be on the journey. 18 times in that book, he longs to go home. When he finally gets home, it's not the same. These authors are trying to tell us something, and Lewis writes these sorts of things in his books as well. What's the home we really long for? I went to my 50th high school reunion two years ago. And it's interesting. Uh, you, you get there, and they give you a name tag with your yearbook picture on it because nobody would recognize you otherwise. You know, all, all my friends, they're, they're old. They have thick glasses, mm-hmm. gray hair. They're bald, little paunch, you know. I'm fine, but life has been hard on them. And, and, and we go back home, and it's not the same. Right. What are we looking for? And Lewis even says when you tell a child a story at night, you're reading the story to them, and you're creating a world for them that they have enjoyed in the story. What do they say to you after they hear the story that they like so much? Read it again. Mm-hmm. Why? And Lewis says he thinks it appeals to that part of us that longs for another world. But the part that longs for another world ultimately longs for the only other world we could ever really know, which is heaven. So Lewis writes about this. He, he, he writes about it when he writes about human brokenness and the desire to have the brokenness in us fixed or the desire, the quest for love. Like, like Dante, he meets Beatrice Portinari on the streets of Florence and she lights a candle in his, in his heart. But is it Beatrice he really wants? And he's trying to figure it out when he writes the, the, the uh, Vita Nuova, New Life. It was his first book. And 25 years later, he finally writes a divine comedy. And Virgil, who also rep- represented for him quest literature, Virgil's Aeneid, you know, Aeneas is in the city of Troy, it's destroyed. And now he's longing for a new city as he flees the city of his birth. He longs for the city he's going to build, which is Rome. That's where the term romantic comes from, from that, that book, basically. Dante has Virgil, the quest author. Lead him through the inferno, hell. Lead him halfway through the purgatorio. Beatrice comes out of heaven and collects him. She's already died. She comes out of heaven and guides him through the rest of the purgatorio on into the paradiso to the very threshold of the vision of God. And Dante writes, she turned to look, but not at me. She turned to the eternal fountain. And Lewis, when he finishes the book he wrote after his wife died, A Grief Observed, the last words in that book are in Italian. 
and they are from Dante. And they are, she turned to look, but not at me. She turned to the eternal fountain. And Lewis is basically saying, love is great. Human love is great. Wouldn't live without it. But it can only go so far. And God's love is the love that we should pursue most. Lewis writes an essay on this called First and Second Things. It's in the book, God and the Dog. And he says, if you put second things first, you lose out on first and second things. But if you put first things first, You'll have first things even if second things are taken from you. But if you have first things first, you can enjoy second things the way they were meant to be enjoyed. It's powerful stuff. Mm. Lewis also said, I can't imagine a man really enjoying a book and reading it only once. Oh, yeah. Well, (laughs) he, he writes this in several places, actually. He says the mark of a literary person is that they read a book only once. Um, you know what, though? We have Lewis's library here at Wheaton College. The biggest collection of C.S. Lewis material in the world is here at Wheaton College. And you can come. Anybody can come and look at the stuff. We have the wardrobe that he played in as a boy that was built by his grandfather. It's wow. here. We have the desk Tolkien wrote The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings on. It's here at, at Wheaton College. But I can take you to the stacks downstairs where we have his library. And I can pull out his copy of Don Juan by Lord Byron. I can take you to the last page. And Lewis wrote in it, never again. So Lewis didn't think every book should be read more than once. <laughs> but, 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 but the point the point is, though, there are books that feed our souls. Yeah. And, and we're not just reading them to check a box. I mean, sometimes even our college education inoculates us against learning and growing. You know, sometimes I'll talk to a student 20 years out and I'll say, say, have you read Dante? Oh, I read it in college. As if that's an excuse to never have to touch that book again. No, I, I, I tell you, I've got a whole list of them, actually. My students ask me, what are these books for you? I say, these aren't all the books I've read, but these are all the ones I keep going back to. Mm, awesome. and, and, and so they, they feed our souls that way. So I think you're right. Also, I think this might be something to explore. I don't know if we, how much time we've got. So, well, but what yeah. are all the ways that Lewis did find he could share his faith? Yeah. And I think this is important to, to, to think about for a, a minute because okay. it shows his evangelistic efforts were, were, were not just a thing that he did. It was integrated in all yeah. of his life. Jerry, let's take a little break and we come back. We'll talk about all the ways Lewis found to share his faith. Dr. Jerry Root is my guest. He's the director of evangelism and director of evangelism initiative at Wheaton College. It's also uh, quite an expert on C.S. Lewis. We'll take a short break. Be right back. Dr. Jerry Root, professor of evangelism and director of evangelism initiative at Wheaton College. Uh, Jerry, let's talk about all the ways that Lewis found to share his faith. When he first becomes a Christian, Lewis would say and actually said enough that he's not an evangelist, really, even though he was very active sharing his faith. Um, he, I don't think he would have said, I have the gift of evangelism. 
But but I actually went to a church one time, and this pastor said, oh, Jerry, we like to encourage people in our church with the gift of evangelism to do it, as if everybody else got a pass. I said, man, I want to <laughs> preach at your church so I can tell all the people that don't have the gift of giving, they don't have to give anymore. Right. <laughs> and I don't, I don't want to go to the church where only those with the gift of mercy are being merciful. You know, yeah. that'd be a cold-hearted place. All of us are to do this, and all of us are to do it through the ways that we're wired. And, 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 you know, if, if you have the gift of hospitality, do your evangelism around the table. If you have the gift of service, pick up your tool, tool chest and go down the street and help people with their car problems and so on. If you have the gift of, of, of uh, giving, then, then, then pay your neighbor's bill if he's out of work, his, uh, his electric bill or something like that. And watch that open up doors and do your sharing that way. If you have the gift of administration, plan a big outreach at your church on Super Bowl Sunday or something like that. Bring in a former professional athlete to share the gospel and whatnot. So, so anyway, what did Lewis have? He comes to faith. What does he have? He has a pen. He was a writer. And so he employs the pen, and he writes his first Christian book. And it, it, it's written the year after he becomes a Christian, and it's profound in its insight. And again, it's profound because he was informed by all the reading that he had done and so on. But one of the ways that he shares his faith is through the pen. Another way he shares his faith is he was a university uh, teacher. And so consequently, he, with a couple of other people, started what was called the Oxford Socratic Club. And one one week, they would have a person during term, a Christian read a paper, and the non-Christians would respond. The next week, a non-Christian or a skeptic would read a paper, and the Christians would respond. And they would have an ongoing dialogue with, 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 uh, with no rancor. Ongoing dialogue is so foreign to us today because we don't think you can do that. If you disagree with somebody, we hold them in a rancorous way or something like that. My Actually, my doctoral supervisor was the vice president of the Socratic Club, and when Lewis went to Cambridge, he became the president. It was fascinating to hear him talk about how Lewis would use that as a forum to kind of approach the arguments of the skeptic and help them see beyond the barriers they had to some, some light that was shining beyond, which was Christ himself. The other thing, too, is during World War II. Um, England was being attacked by by, by uh, all kinds of bombing raids and so on, and uh, RAF was going up and fighting them. What did Hitler, uh, not Hitler, Churchill said, never did so many owe so much to so few, talking about the RAF airmen. Lewis would go almost every weekend and preach to the RAF airmen that he could share the gospel wow. with people who had eternity. Uh, they were on the threshold of eternity. They might die at any time. Um, his apologetic books then became very important, and, and he writes these apologetic books taking on big themes, Problem of Pain, Miracles, and Supernaturalism. And then as a result of the Problem of Pain, he got an invitation to come to the BBC, British Broadcasting Company, and speak on the BBC the, the talks that became Mere Christianity. At that time, he was the most non-BBC commentator to be heard on the BBC after only Winston Churchill. It's amazing. And, and you know, you, by the way, I read the book that the, that the historian for the BBC wrote on C.S. Lewis at the BBC. The guy who started the BBC was a guy named John Reith, and he was a Christian. And he's trying to think, how are we going to describe what we're doing when we transmit messages over the radio? He was doing Matthew 13 in his quiet time that day in the King James Version, and it says the sower went out to sow, and he sowed his seeds broadcast. <laughs> and he took the word broadcast from Matthew 13, and we hear it all the time now. 
the, the broadcast, this broadcast, that broadcast. Wow. We even have podcasts now. It comes from the Bible. But anyway, Lewis used that as a means to share his faith. Whenever he would share his faith on the BBC or his books, people started writing him letters, almost pastoral advice, you know, and, and, and he would write them and, and he would win people to faith through letter writing. And he wrote thousands of letters. Some people said, you're wasting your time writing all these letters. You could be, you could be writing more books. There's actually eight different uh, works, uh, volumes of his letter writing. There's three massive works that were done by Walter Hooper, but there's eight different books of his, of his letters because they're so profound and pithy and to the point. He also would preach in churches. So a guy named William Sangster, years ago I read his biography, he was the guy who first brought Billy Graham to London. And, and so I wanted to read about him. He pastored Westminster Central Hall, the church that's right across the street from Parliament. And while I'm reading this biography, all of a sudden he starts talking about how he would bring Lewis from Oxford to preach in his church. Lewis talks about this actually in an essay he wrote called Christian Apologetics. He says, bring in your academic and your apologists to, to basically uh, confront the objections of the unbeliever and then break in your preacher to preach the heart. And in Sanctuary's biography, he talks about Lewis preaching or doing, being the apologist and a guy named Stephen Olford being one of the guys who would preach the heart. I knew Stephen Olford. He, had, hmm. he was the guy who preached my ordination council years ago. And I said, I had no idea you spoke with Lewis. Tell me about him. He said, well, I'll tell you, he was scintillating in debate, but he preached like an English grocer. I don't know what he meant by that, but nevertheless, um, Lewis was still in churches and preaching. He wrote articles for Christian and secular journals and magazines with his faith coming through strong. He even wrote articles for the Saturday Evening Post. And furthermore, there were these indirect opportunities. He was on the cover of Time magazine. Uh, in the late 1940s, and, and even as the Time magazine wrote about this guy, they said he made righteousness readable, and his heresy was orthodoxy. And, and there are C.S. Lewis societies that have sprung up everywhere, and institutes and so on, and, and these things are carrying on the legacy of Lewis. So the gospel's coming out everywhere. It wasn't just an area of his life. It was something that informed all of his life, and I think this is fabulous. There's even a book called uh, um, Severe Mercy by a guy yeah. named Sheldon Von Alken. I read that Sheldon, book. He had been a student of Lewis's, yeah. and Lewis was concerned about him and, and led one of his students to Christ. Lewis didn't go around wearing the stuff on his sleeve. He was sensitive to where a person was at, but if he sensed a person was spiritually hungry, he would speak to that. Mm -hmm. And he was sensitive to it, as I think all of us should be. When you read Severe Mercy, how many boxes of Kleenex did you go through? Well, I, I, I'm a high T on the Myers-Briggs. <laughs> so, so you didn't I, respond you know, that way. No, but I, I, I watched people who wept. Or actually, it, it, it's a very moving book. It's very moving. Very moving book. Yeah. And it's interesting, too, that a lot of the things Lewis writes about in A Grief Observed, he's writing to Van Alken in those letters when his wife died that are the same themes that he writes about in A Grief Observed. And this was before Lewis, Lewis, Lewis's wife died. It's interesting. It's interesting. Some of his ministry to the to von Alken kind of prepared him for what was ahead in his own life. Um, you know, there's one really big thing, though. I don't know how much time we have, and I want we to have, be sensitive. We have two minutes. One big thing. Lewis wrote out of his love for Jesus. There was one of the last things he ever wrote 
to anybody was a little girl wrote him a letter from America, and he wrote to her. It was almost the last things he penned. He's ready to die. She's ready to start her, her life as a as a, a human being on this earth. And he said to her, if you continue to love Jesus, nothing much will go wrong with you. And I pray you may always do so. Sometimes we have haltingness in sharing our faith. Maybe nobody's ever taught us how. But, but sometimes it might be that our love for Jesus is waning. If you love Jesus, talking about him will come out naturally. Nobody's ever chided a grandmother because she breaks out pictures of her grandkids. Nobody ever chides a, a, a sports fan because they talk about their favorite team. Lewis loved Jesus. And consequently, it comes out in all these various ways. It was something that was a part, not just a part of his life, but the thing that informed all of his life. And I think that's important to realize. Fantastic. Jerry, thank you so much. I've gotten so many, so much nice feedback. A listener named Amy said, my love language is these kinds of conversations. Yeah. It's yeah, lovely. I think that's right. Yeah. Thank you for taking the time today. You are now free to go eat dinner or maybe take your dog for a walk. I'm going to take my dog for a walk. Yeah. Yeah. A good time to do it. Yeah. Blessings on you, Bill. Thank you so much. Thanks. Dr. Thanks Jerry, for the privilege. You bet. Dr. Jerry Root has been my guest, professor of evangelism and director of evangelism initiative at Wheaton College. We'll take a little break and then uh, we've got hour two just ahead, which is the prayer series. We're going to continue. Dr. Peter Kapsner and I are going to be joined by Dr. Marcus Bachman for what we call part two. We had Marcus on about a month ago and We had so much to go and cover that we decided we needed to get back at it. So that's all coming up in just a few minutes. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.